session on a course that I've taught here back in school of ministry. I taught it in another school that I had 30 years ago uh, on the blood covenant, which is the basis of our relationship with God. Most of us, many of you came out of church denominations and some traditions where things were very legalistic and very structured and very uh, based on what you did and didn't do right. And uh, we've all come out of a culture and a society and families that you, you know, you get what you deserve or you, or you don't get, you get what you deserve, basically. And, um, and then we come into the faith, into Christ, and we have to renew our mind to what the Bible says, what grace is, what God has done for us. But God's given us some examples to help us to struggle with and overcome uh, just learning how to believe Him and trust Him in what God's done for us. So to do that, we went back and looked at, at the story of Abraham and how God entered into a blood covenant with Abraham. We looked at what covenants were, and the covenant's more than a, more than a contract, or contract just an exchange of promises, but a covenant is where you commit something along with your promise to bind it and make it certain. And a blood covenant is where you commit your life to the other person or to the other family, and, and so that's what makes the blood covenant the most solemn and sacred type of covenant, because what you've committed is your life. And the essence of a blood covenant is the two covenant partners or the two covenant families or the two covenant tribes or nations become one. They become one. Their identity is now merged. Their, all their assets and liabilities are now merged together. So whoever comes against one comes against the other. And we looked and saw examples of that with Abraham and, and how God blessed Abraham and promised Abraham that whoever comes against you comes against me. And that's why God still takes care of Israel. I was watching a, a message by Robert Morris the other day about how God's caused... You realize Israel is a land, is a desert, and yet it's, it, water flows in that nation. It is, it is like a garden because they're God's people. God's ordained that land and blessed that land. And so whoever blesses Israel, God blesses. Whoever curses Israel, God curses because God entered into a blood covenant with Abraham. But we're going to see tonight the fulfillment of that covenant. So we've gone through how covenants were entered into. We've gone through they exchanged clothes, they exchanged uh, weapons, they exchanged names. They did all to symbolize the, the combining together in the union. And then last week we began to look at some principles or what I call concept related to the covenant that help us make it more real to us. And we looked at two of them last year, one last week. It seems like last year. <laughs> One of them was the covenant seal, S-E-A-L, not the thing that you feed fish to, but the covenant seal or mark. And we saw that, that, that um, in the old covenant with Abraham, that was the mark of the circumcision. Because what a covenant mark does or scar is it, it lets everybody else know that you're in covenant with somebody and gives you some idea of who you're in covenant with. And we saw that in the, in the Old Testament, that was the, the circumcision. But in the New Testament, it's the Holy Spirit. And we looked at that. He is the spiritual mark on you that you belong to God and that God belongs to you. Then the second one we looked at last week was the covenant meal. And we saw that, we went back and looked at the fact that in, a, in the entering in, the process of entering into a covenant, that the last thing they would do was share a covenant meal. And the meal was not the covenant, but a meal rem- solemnized it. it. It memorialized it. It's kind of like we have a wedding and then we have a reception. The reception doesn't marry anybody, but it celebrates the union that was taking place at the ceremony. It was kind of like that. And then we looked at that the, the Passover was like that. And then what Jesus instituted was a new meal, which we call communion, and that's a covenant meal. And tonight we're going to look at the third one, and it's called covenant heads. Head in the, in the sense of being the, the, the top of something, the head of something, the, 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 the top dog in something. And that'll become clear as we go through this. Under the terms of a, of covenant, of a covenant, when, when, the, when the covenant was entered into, all the rights and privileges of the covenant did not just apply to the two parties that physically entered into it. I mean, if you had, Denny and I were going to enter a blood covenant, it's simple, we go through the ritual together. Anita and I did that 52 years ago. That was our marriage ceremony. We entered into a blood, it was just the two of us, we had witnesses. But if you've got 500 people in one tribe and 400 people in another tribe, they're not all going to cut their bodies and do all of that. So they would select somebody to be their representative to go through the physical ceremony on behalf of each one of those tribes or families or nations or whatever they were. 
And, and, and here's the important thing. No, although I was part of that family or part of that tribe, and I did not, was not the one that physically cut the covenant, all the provisions of it apply to me as much as the people that actually went out there and cut themselves and walked through the bloody mess that we've talked about before. Not only that, not only did the benefits and responsibilities of that covenant apply to everybody else that was there that day, it applied to everybody that wasn't even born to those families or tribes yet. So you could be born a generation or two generations later, and that covenant was just... Well, the Jews are a great example of that. Because they still have a covenant with God, and they've been born many generations after that, and God still honors the covenant, even though he entered into it with Abraham. And so a covenant head is somebody that represents that family, that tribe, that nation, whatever that group is that's going to enter into the covenant by going through the ceremony, and the covenant head or heads, however many they were, would physically go through the ceremony, but it would apply to everybody else. And it applied to them even though they were not born. So all the rights of a covenant were based on what the... Listen carefully. All the rights and privileges and responsibilities of a covenant were based on what the covenant heads had done not what the members of the tribe or the family had done. Their only qualification was that they be members of that family. So when somebody is born into a Jewish family, and they, they automatically become the beneficiaries of what God promised to Abraham thousands of years ago. And we're going to see how it applies to us. So let's go to 1 Samuel 18, because here is a great specific example of it. And it's David and Jonathan. David and Jonathan, 1 Samuel 18. We're just going to go through the first four verses. Now, what's happened up until this time, David's just finished killing Goliath. So David's now got a big name for himself. And David's being brought to the king. He's being given the king's daughter for a bride. And David's now big stuff. And so David's coming from that. He's also, Saul now begins to recognize that there's a young kid. Because remember, Saul's... God has taken Saul's call away from him and he's given it to David because of Saul's rebellion and Saul's refusal to obey God and his pride that he would not confess and let go of. And so at the culmination of all of this, David now, we now begin this story. And uh, Saul has a son and his name's Jonathan. He has another son, we won't get into it today. But Now when he finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul t- took him that day, David, and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. And Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him more than his own soul. We'll see if you read it further. It's jo- D- Jonathan loved David more than his own soul. These words are significant. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him. Now that's a robe of a royal family. Because Jonathan is the next in line to be king. Saul is now the king. And Jonathan is the son that's going to be king when Saul passes away. And so he's wearing royal robes. So he's taking this. Remember the robe represents your identity. And so in the cutting of a covenant, they would exchange robes, which represented an exchanging of their identity. So that's what's taking place here. And he gave it to David along with his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt. We talked about the weapons represent a commitment of your strength and all your resources to defend and to protect. So this is what Jonathan is promising to David. So David went wherever Saul sent him. Well, let's stop at verse 4. Okay. So let's go back. Verse 1 says that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. The Hebrew word is kashar, which means to be bound or tied together. So there is a melding together, a joining together of their hearts, a commitment of their hearts together, and they go through some aspects, at least what we see here, some aspects of entering into a blood covenant, exchange robes, uh, swords, bows, and their, their belt. They probably cut themselves somewhere. We don't know. It doesn't say that. And in 1 Samuel 23, 18, it says that they both made a covenant before the Lord. Now, what we've just learned is they're representing their families in this covenant. 
They're representing their families and what they're going through right now. Now, to give you a little background here, Saul is, is the first king of Israel, and David has already been appointed as his successor, and Saul begins to realize this because he sees the grace and the hand of God and the anointing of God upon Saul. And as it goes along, Saul gradually, the Spirit of God retreats from him, and Saul turns at some point to a witch, to witchcraft, the witch at Endor, to get spiritual guidance from because the Spirit of God had departed from him. In fact, an evil spirit now follows him around, and David, he has to have David sing psalms to him and play his harp so that the Spirit calms down in him. So gradually what happens is, Saul begins to realize David is his successor and he's jealous. He's younger, he's handsomer, he's anointed, whereas his lost his anointing. And when you get into rebellion and disobedience, it changes the... Oh, I'm going to be careful, like a preacher. It changes how you see people. It changes how you see every situation. It's like taking different glasses and putting sunglasses on that are the Polaroid kind. You ever have those? You turn them like that and the sun glare goes down and up. But you pull different colored glasses on, it changes the colors that you're seeing. But when something gets in your heart, because the heart governs what controls your inner man, then what gets into your heart, if you let things get into your heart that are apart from God, it will begin to color everything you see, and especially how you see other people. So instead of seeing David as a blessing to the nation of Israel, he's jealous and envious of him, and he now takes all of his army and dedicates it to killing and destroying David. But you've got Saul's son, who's now entered into a blood covenant with this young man, David. So what you have here is you have Jonathan is born of a family whose head is the enemy of David. Is the enemy of David. Saul, Jonathan's father, is trying to kill and destroy David. So Jonathan... And David are the most unlikely parties to enter into a covenant because you would think Jonathan would want to see David destroyed so that he would get the crown. But there was something in Jonathan that recognized something in David, and it was most likely Jonathan's heart towards God, that that they were bound together by a covenant relationship. And we don't have time to go into all, all that it meant in terms of those particular relationships because there's a bigger point I want to make here. So they both entered into a covenant. 1 Samuel 23, 18 said the two of them made a covenant and they made the covenant before the Lord. They made a covenant before the Lord. So the Lord was a party to this covenant. Just as when two couples that believe in Jesus get married, the Lord is a covenant, is a party to that covenant that is made. And that becomes important if you want to be able to live it out. Because there were times in the 52 years when it wasn't my strength or her strength that held us together. It was the Lord who was the one that held us together. And he is the strength of the covenant. So Jonathan and David became representatives of their families. Again, Saul and David are opposites. David is unlikely to ever enter into a covenant with Saul's family because they're enemies. David was a man after God's heart But Saul was a man opposed to God's will, and his heart was not towards God. There cannot really be a covenant unless the two have come together in agreement. Amos 3.3 says, unless two walk together, how can they agree? But David saw that Saul had a son who was not like Saul's family, and that served God. And although Jonathan's qualities were not in his family, they could be treated on the basis of the covenant that David made with Jonathan, that he'd enter into. In other words, the qualities that David sees in Jonathan are not in his father and not in, we don't have time to get into his brother, they're not in him either or any of his siblings. But David's covenant with Jonathan now means he's going to treat Jonathan's family on the basis of his covenant he made with Jonathan, not just on the basis, not just on John, how Jonathan was worthy. Let me back up and say that again. It got twisted in my mouth. Okay, David has made a covenant with Jonathan based on what Jonathan's like. But David's going to treat the other members of Jonathan's family 
not on the basis of what they're like because they're ungodly people. He's going to treat them on the basis of what Jonathan's like because Jonathan was the covenant head with whom he entered into the covenant with. Everybody follow me now? Okay, you'll see this very clearly in a few minutes. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 4. This is one of the most exciting stories in the Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 4. Now what's happened is uh, David... Okay. Saul has a son named Ishbeth, and he's murdered. Saul is killed, and Jonathan is killed in battle. And the people come to choose David as their king, first of all over Hebron, which was the southern part of Israel, then eventually, uh, a few years later, over all of Israel. The moment the word gets out that Jonathan and Saul are dead, Jonathan has a, Jonathan has a son named Mephibosheth. And he's in the hands of a, of, a, of a nurse. He's a small child. He's in the hands of the nurse. Now, you've got to understand, I mean, we've had some, some real upheavals when we've had presidential elections, okay? But what they did in those days is the way you secured yourself as the new king is you killed all the ones that could oppose you. So they would kill the sons of the king that just died, even if it was their own brothers, to make sure that nobody that thought they had a right to the throne you've now got could do it. So the moment, the moment Jonathan's son's nurse, nanny, hears that his father's been killed and David is now king, she grabs this boy she's responsible for and she rushes out to go hide him so that David doesn't find him. In the process of rushing out, she drops him and his legs are broken. And they can't take him down to the, to the emergency room, so his legs never heal. And we're going to see at the end. So this young boy is, is, is lame. And she rushes and hides him in this unknown place called Lodabar. The name Lodabar means a town without a pasture. So it was desolate. And that's what she wants. She wants some place where... David's not going to try to find him because her idea is David's going to try to kill all the descendants of Saul so that David can be secure in his reign. Verse 4, 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. That was where the battle was that Saul and Jonathan died. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened that as she made haste to flee, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. His name was Mephibosheth. Okay. So here's the situation. David's now king. And he's beginning to establish himself. He's beginning to establish his governors. He's beginning to establish the, his boundaries and the borders. He has a battles with different nations that are around him. And by the time we're going to pick it up now, David's well established as king. And I believe at this point, he's king over all of Israel. Now that everything's settled down, we're going to pick up the story. This is years later. We're now in Second uh, Samuel 9. So all this time between when the nurse ran with Mephibosheth and hid in Lodabar, years have passed. And you imagine what's going on every day. Every day when they get up and she goes out and gets water or whatever she gets, there's this fear that someday they're going to see dust on the horizon. Because when a king comes to get you, he doesn't sneak in that there's an army going to become that's found out where this son is. and the, this is, So every day they're living, and as the boy grows up, he's living with this fear that someday David 
the one that was the enemy of his grandfather's house, the one, and he's the only one left at this point that has any birthright under Saul's family, that someday David's going to find out where he is and he's going to kill him. So every day I'm sure there was fear this was going to happen. So we're going to pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 9. So David's now established. Now David said, is there anyone still among those left of the house of Saul? But notice he's not saying this because he wants to destroy them, that I may show kindness. Now look at these words, that I may show kindness. The word kindness is very weak there because in the Hebrew it's the word chesed, and it's like you're going to spit. Chesed. The word chesed, chesed, uh, is, appears in the Old Testament 240 times. It, it, is the, it is the covenant it is the covenant, faithful, steadfast love of one person for another. And in this case, in the Old Testament, it is the, it is the covenant, steadfast love of God for his covenant people. I, one of my Jewish partners in the last law firm I was in, he was a, he was a practicing Jew, and he knew Hebrew and um, and I was learning some of these things then. I actually taught this before. And I was just talking to him one day because we'd had some interesting conversations. And I asked him about this word because he'd learned Hebrew. And I but taught this was a very sacred word to the Jews. And I said, can you tell me, do you, was there anything special about the word chassid? And he said, oh, wow. He says, I just know that when my grandmother would talk to me and she'd mention this word, her whole countenance would change. Her eyes would fill up with water. I could tell there was a significance. There was a holiness and a significance, a power to this word that was unlike many other words that were in the Hebrew language. Um, uh, Lamentation 3.20, the steadfast love of the Lord never fades. That's this word, chassid. The word loving kindness that you see over and over again in, in, in Psalms is this word, chassid. It is more than just a kind feeling towards someone. It is a loyal love that never gives up. We sang it about it tonight. That's what got so excited. It's the love that never quits, never gives up. It's a bulldog love. You know what a bulldog is? It's an animal, it's a dog that was bred specifically to be able to bite something and never let go. So if you've noticed, notice the nose, it's bred so the nose is, is slanted back. That's so it can latch onto something and still breathe. And I've read stories of, of a burglar that broke into somebody's house and didn't realize there was a bulldog in there. And that bulldog latched onto him. And when they came to the house the next day and opened the door, here's this guy passed out from loss of blood. Here's the bulldog still holding on to him. And you could tell he'd taken a lamp and bit it over the bulldog's head. And the bulldog would not let go until the owner released him. I think that's why Winston Churchill liked a bulldog, because he had that same kind of looks and personality. So they would ne- but it's never quit. And that's the love of God that's the love of that's the covenant love that Jonathan and David had for one another. So David, now we're going to see it acted out. It's one thing to say it. We're going to see it acted out. David's now king. He can do whatever he wants. If somebody criticizes him, he can have their head cut off. Now David said, is there still anyone who's left of the house of Saul that I may show chesed or this loving kindness, this loyal kindness for Jonathan's sake? It's a loyalty to Jonathan. It's a loyalty to the covenant that he made with Jonathan years before, and now he wants to carry that covenant out. He is actively looking for somebody to bless so that he can carry out this covenant he made with Jonathan, who's long gone. So Jonathan's death did not relieve him from the commitment that he made. And so now he's going to actively search out someone he can show this kindness for, this loving, faithful, loyal love towards, this blessing towards. Verse 2. There was a servant of the house of Saul named Ziba. And when they called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he says, I'm here at your service. 
And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? That's that same word again. Notice it's the kindness of God. It's the loyal, steadfast, love, unquitting love of God. Isn't there somebody that I can show this love that God of God that I should had for Jonathan? And Ziba said to the king, Well, there's still a son of Jonathan. He's lame in his feet. In other words, he's not worth anything. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. And the king sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. And just imagine the scene. This is the day they've feared ever since they've been there. And they're coming out because, again, the king doesn't just send one person. They're looking out one day and there's, there's dust on the horizon. And then they begin to feel the ground rumbling. And they begin to see some entourage coming more and more towards them. And it doesn't take long to realize that this is the king's emissary. And they don't explain why they've come. They just come from Mephibosheth. And he's probably wondering, why don't they kill me here? Maybe he just wants to do it publicly. He wants to see revenge for what my grandfather did for him, to him. Because we don't have time to go through all that Saul did to try to destroy David. But it was horrible. And it was a long period of time. Verse 5. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house. Okay, verse 6. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said to Mephibosheth, and he, he said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, here is your servant. Now imagine what's going through Mephibosheth's mind. Verse 7. And David said to him, do not be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness, the chassid, the covenant love for Jonathan, for your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. So he's telling him what he wants to do. Notice, for Jonathan. He's not doing it because there's anything about Mephibosheth that he likes, cares about. He didn't know Mephibosheth from Adam up until this point. But all these promises he's making, all that he's doing for Mephibosheth is simply because of a promise, a covenant, he entered into with the covenant head, Jonathan, Mephibosheth's father. And I will, for your father's sake, and I will restore to you all the land of your Saul, of Saul, your grandfather. Now Saul was his enemy. All the things you would have inherited from your father, from your grandfather, I'm going to give to you. And you shall eat at my table continually. It gets better. Verse 8. So imagine Mephibosheth trying to process this. It's kind of like some of us when we first heard the gospel. He bowed himself because he still sees himself as an enemy, even though he can't do anything, as a representative of the enemy, of the family of the enemy, and all he can imagine is, I'm going to get destroyed. He's playing games with me. I don't know what's going on here. So he bows himself, that's humbling, and he said, what is your servant that should look upon such a dead dog as I? He considered himself dead. Dog in the Bible did not mean like Molly, a four-legged animal. It means an outcast. So his image now, his image in the presence of the king with all the glory, all the majesty, all the gold, all the beautiful things in there, his, and he's come from a house where he's been hiding away. All his images, I'm nothing. I have no ability to stand before this king physically or to stand before this king in any right in myself and have any reason to declare to him why I should live. That's how he's still seeing himself. So he sees himself as dead, as a dead dog, verse 9. And the king said, notice he's not listening to him. The king is kind of like the father of the prodigal son. And the king called the Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I've given your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. Verse 10. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him. So he took Saul's former slave 
and now said, this man is your master. And you're going to do, all your sons are going to work for him. And look at this. And you will bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Verse 11. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all the Lord my king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. And as for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table. Look at this. Like one of my... Only the king's son sat at his table. The third time he said, this is a, a, a man who in his own right could do nothing, in his own right was the enemy of the king, in his own right had nothing to, even to justify himself to live in the sight of this king, and he's now being treated like one of the king's sons because of nothing he did and nothing he deserved. It's all because of what his covenant head did with David the king. Some of you are already getting this. Although Mephibosheth was totally helpless and dependent, he's treated as part of the king's family because of the covenant his father made with the king. All Mephibosheth can do is to receive what David offered. That's all he can do. To receive it, now listen to this, to receive it, he, to, to, to receive it, he has to give up who he used to be. What he used to be in Lodabar was a victim. What he used to be in Lodabar was a dead dog. What he used to be in Lodabar was somebody lame and couldn't, prove, couldn't provide for himself, couldn't do anything for himself. What he what used to be in Lodabar was the son of the enemy. He has to let go of that image in order to sit at the king's table. The covenant head meant that the child of that head, born after the covenant was made, Mephibosheth was not alive when the covenant was made, and a member of that family that hated the king was now received as a member of the king's own family, though he hated the king and was totally dependent. Verse 12 said, And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, who dwelt in the house of Zebah were the servants of Mephibosheth. I love verse 13. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table. There's the fourth time that. And I love this last lame. And he was lame in both his feet. He could do nothing of value for the king on his own. His own value to the king was his father entered into a covenant with him. All right, let's look at... Oh, by the way, the Hebrew word Mephibosheth means one delivered from shame. One delivered from shame. His brother, his, his uncle's name was Ishbeth, Ishbeth, and it means one who's died in shame or something similar to that. Okay, now let's take a look at the covenant that we have right now. Hebrews 8, 6 says that, that we have obtained, that Jesus, our covenant head, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant which is established on better promises. So we've studied the covenant of Abraham, the God of Abraham. We're going to now look at where does that fit in with our covenant in the next half hour or so. All right. So we're now part of a better covenant that's based on better promises, and the mediator, which is another name for covenant head of our covenant, is Jesus Christ. So although we're comparing the new covenant to the Mosaic, although this compares the new covenant to the Mosaic covenant, not the Abrahamic covenant, it does show that Jesus came to establish a new covenant. And we're going to see the relation of the two. In the covenant that God made with Abraham... He entered into as much of a union with Abraham 
as he could. Remember when we went through the, the steps of physically entering a covenant and we talked about they would take animals and they would cut them down the middle and they would split them open, which represented that taking one was one and then dividing into two and then they're going to walk through the middle of it. And then, then when you do that, it's going to be a bloody mess down that middle. And, that, and then the, the two covenant heads that were entering into the covenant would link arm in arm and they would walk down through the middle, this bloody middle, getting blood all over themselves. And by the way, that middle was called the way. And then they would walk around in a figure eight pattern representing that this was an unending commitment that they were making. And then we looked at it went on and said, so what God did with Abraham, this is in, in Genesis 15, is he put Abraham into a deep sleep and then he had this vision of a smoking lamp and a burning lantern together going through the pieces of the animals that Abraham had split open at God's command. And we saw those represented God the Son and God the Father. So God could not physically link arms with Abraham and walk through it, so it was done in a symbolic way. God did it as close to real practice as he could, because this was just the shadow of what was to come, the real covenant that was to come. God, Abraham could not have God's, did not have God's righteous nature, so he, his righteousness had to be imputed to him. When God cut the covenant, he had to do it symbolically with a furnace and a burning lamp. That's Genesis 15, 17. God could not physically cut the covenant. He did as close as he could. But God intended for that covenant to make due until God could actually physically, let's listen to this, until God could actually and physically enter into a blood covenant with man, physically go through a ritual of the cutting of a covenant. The original covenant, let's go to Genesis 22, verse 18. The original covenant that God made, and your nation, in your seed, in your seed, in Hebrew, that's singular we normally think of seed as all the descendants. And God did make promises to the descendants of Abraham that they will be blessed. But in your seed, in your seed, or through your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you obey my voice. That word seed there is singular, so it's talking about one seed. Through that one seed, all the earth, is, nations of the earth, is going to be blessed. In Galatians 3, verse 16. Now, this is Paul talking back about this combination. Now, to Abraham and his seed, notice there the seed is a capital S. To Abraham and his seed, and it's singular there, to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, and now he makes it really clear, who is Christ. So Abraham was a stand-in for God entering into a covenant with Christ. It is through Christ that we become partakers of this covenant. Now Galatians 3.27 For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put Christ on. Verse 28. For there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, but we are all one through Christ. Verse 29, do you have that? I should have given that to you. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's heirs, offspring, and heirs according to the promise. I should have told him that. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Our union with Christ joins us to one of the covenant heads. So the covenant that we've been studying that God entered into with Abraham was a precursor. It was a preparation for it until God could send somebody because he couldn't use Abraham because Abraham was not holy. He was a representative on a temporary basis 
until that God could fulfill that covenant. And at the appointed time, God becomes a man. So that God as a man can enter into a blood covenant, physically cut a blood covenant with God the Father. Hebrews 7.22 So Christ is our covenant head. Hebrews 7.22 By so much more, Jesus has become the surety, the guarantee of a better covenant or the covenant head, the guarantee to us. Hebrews 8.6 says He is the mediator between God and man. He's the covenant head. Now the new covenant, which we've just looked at, was represented by the covenant between Jonathan and David. So as was Saul's house, there was not one man who served or followed after God, except Jonathan. And so out of Saul's house, Saul's house was not serving God, just like Adam's house was not serving God, was in rebellion against God. God sent his only son to become a man in the family that was his enemy. That's in Romans 5. God sent his only son to become a man in the family that was enemy, and he was of that family, but he was different, just like Jonathan was of his father's family, but he was different. Jesus was in the world, but not of the world. He was the Jonathan of the human race. And God entered into a covenant with with Jesus who stood as the covenant head for the human race. And he physically cut that covenant on the cross. And the scars and the mark of that covenant are still on his hands and still on his feet. We are in the position of Mephibosheth. Our natural family that we were born into physically is the enemy of the king, Adam's family, the enemy of the king. We did not seek a relationship with the king just as Mephibosheth did not seek the relationship with the king because we feared him, because we feared his judgment, we feared his punishment just as Mephibosheth, (laughs) the kid, just as he feared the king's judgment and the king's punishment for who he was. On our own, we're lame and feeble. Doesn't Jesus say, apart from me, you can do nothing? In fact, it takes a work of the Holy Spirit to see how lame we really are. That's what the law was designed to do. The law was given to Moses so the people could see just how strong and holy they could be on their own. And it was intended to show them how lame and how they had nothing of value that they could bring to God in and of themselves. On our own, before God, on our own, we're lame and feeble. Yet, because of the covenant entered into between the Father and Jesus, we are treated by the Father as if we are Jesus. And there's going to come a day when we're going to be seated at at the feast of the Lamb at the Father's table as a son and as a daughter. The Father now treats me, listen carefully, the Father now treats you and now treats me. This is what's so important in this story and this principle. The Father now treats us only on the basis of the covenant partner that he entered into on Calvary 2,000 years ago. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation, one that's never existed before. On Sundays, down the road a little bit, we're going to talk about what it means to be in him and the reality of the fact that you are in him. You are not with him. You are not near him. He, you are in him and he is in you. You are one with him. So whatever he is, you are. Not because of yourself, 
that because of who you're joined to, just like Mephibosheth was a son of the king, not because of anything about himself, but because of the one that the king was in covenant with. John 16, 27. Jesus says, For the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and have believed that I came out from the Father. Now the world treats us just as it treats Jesus because we're in him. John 17, 14. I've given them thy word and the world hates them because they're not of the world even as I'm not of the world. Our participation in the covenant is not based on what we've done or not done. That's what's so hard to get through to us. That's why this story is so important. Our participation in the covenant is only because you received the offer that Christ made to you. Nothing more and nothing less. My participation in the covenant is not based on what I've done or not done, but on, but on the one who made the covenant for me. But as, as with Mephibosheth, we have to die to who we were to become who he's made us to be. I'm going to say that again. Just as with Mephibosheth, we have to die to who we were to become who he made us to be. Mephibosheth could have held on to who he was and keep saying, I'm just a dead dog. I'm worth, worth to be anything. And he would never feel comfortable sitting at the king's table because he was still looking at his standing before the king based on who he was. He, that's pride. He had to let go of his own self-image in order to embrace who, God, who the king was saying he was based not on what he'd done, but on what his father had done. So Jesus tells us to take up our cross. He said you have to lose your life in order to gain it. Philippians 3, Paul counts all his accomplishments. All, all, Paul, that's so, so this, that's, those sections of verses in Philippians 3, the pattern in there is part of what we're going to follow on Sundays. Paul says, he walks through his pedigree, all the things where he wasn't lame in his feet, all the things he could have accomplished. I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was, under the law, I was perfect. I did all these things, yet I've got to count those all but lost. Actually, he says, I count them as, King James says, dung, and that's what that word means. Refuse. I count it as refuge so that I may know him. We have to make an exchange. We cannot hold on to our self-image and know Him. We cannot hold on to anything of merit about ourselves, good or bad. Some of us have a terrible self-image. You've got to let it go. But some of us have confidence in ourselves and our good intentions. You've got to, neither of them count. They all keep us sitting on the outside like Mephibosheth as a dead dog. You can only sit at the table if you're willing to take your status there as being in Christ and Christ alone. Jesus actually physically cut a blood covenant with God the Father. He shed his own blood. He had a covenant meal as the memorial. And God was actually doing with Christ what he could only symbolically do with Abraham. Now what's this mean to us? Because our covenant had actually entered into a covenant with God, our benefits are actual. The strength of our covenant relationship with God the Father is not based on the strength of my commitment or your commitment. The strength of our blood covenant relationship with God the Father is based on the faithfulness of our covenant head to live out his commitment that he made to the Father and the Father's commitment he made to the Son. God's not counting on your faithfulness. Aren't you glad? It's the Son's faithfulness to the Father that is what holds us safe and secure. Now the things we have to do there's responsibilities we have, but your standing as a child of God 
is not based on you and your faithfulness. It's based on the faithfulness of our covenant head, who is Jesus Christ. This is why we have a better covenant on better promises. Our part in the covenant is secure because it rests on the finished work of our covenant head as long as we stay in our covenant head. And I'm not going to go there tonight. I'm not going to go there tonight. So let's kind of recap the whole purpose of this study. We looked at it at the very beginning. The reason God entered into a covenant with Abraham, remember, God knows his words faith, his words true. God's word, God cannot lie. The Bible says that in three different places or more. God cannot lie. He cannot change. His, 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 his word is eternal, it's safe, it's secure. And, and, and so why would God need to enter into a covenant? Because we don't understand that. But the wonderful thing about that is God knows we don't. God came to where we were. He would have every right to say, look, I can't lie, I won't lie, so you just trust me. But God met man where he was. And God chose a vehicle to communicate this to man, to Abraham, something that Abraham was already familiar with, with the blood covenant. And then God made promises to Abraham that were far beyond his own lifetime and the lifetime of his children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. He made promises to him that are based on where we are to now and everything in between and everything that still has to go on. What an awesome God. And then God was looking forward. All of this is looking forward to the time when God could send his son to enter into a blood covenant for you and me. And so today, as we come, or tomorrow morning when you get up, or today, whenever you come to the Lord the next time, realize, though you're lame in both your feet, there's a place at the Father's table, for you are a child of the living God in Christ Jesus. Everything we have with God is because of who we have been joined to who we are in. All the promises of God are somewhere in there, are in Christ, through Christ, by Christ, for Christ. They're all in Him. And that's who you are today if you've received Christ as your Lord and as your Savior. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the end of this study, I ask you tonight to take the principles that we've learned, the, the stories that we've talked about, and ingrain them in our mind and in our hearts, Lord. Because the whole message that you want to get across to us is that what you've done for us, we can rest in. To cease from our own labor, to cease from our own striving, to come to him, all that are weary and heavy laden, and he will give us rest. Father, there's still so many Christians that are striving to measure up that can constantly feel as if they fall short because they're looking at themselves and somewhere down inside we know we're lame in both our feet. Open the eyes of our understanding that we may truly see the hope of the call, your calling for our life that's because we are in Christ Jesus. Give us confidence in our relationship with you, confidence that we, when we come and pray and talk to you, it's as if Jesus is coming to you because we're in him. When we ask you something, it's as if Jesus is asking you because we're in him, we're one with him. And all the promises that you've made to him and the confidence we have in your relationship with him because he's so holy, we can have the same confidence in our relationship with you because we are him before you and he's one with us. Father, may your spirit, who is our teacher, make this real to us and bring back these things we've learned to our remembrance as we face the circumstances that lie in front of us tonight, tomorrow, and in the days and weeks ahead. And for this, we give you eternal gratitude and thanks. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.